0: Rank, probably not very well known to you, but in psychological circles, is a very well-known name. Austrian psychologist, Austrian psychiatrist, good friend of Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychotherapy, Otto Rank told, once said that, that men, inherently men and women are religious. As a matter of fact, in one of his writings, he said that man is a theological being. Michael Crichton, the author of the Jurassic Park novels, among others, says that religion is something you simply cannot take out of the soul of man. He writes Today it is said that we live in a secular society in which many people, the best people, the most enlightened people, do not believe in any religion. But I think you cannot eliminate religion from the psyche of mankind. If you suppress it in one form, it merely reemerges in another form. You can not believe in God, but you still have to believe in something that gives meaning to your life and shapes your sense of the world. Such a belief is religion. According to an article in the Washington Times, 84% of the world's population adheres to some type of faith system. Quoting from a worldwide study, Of more than 230 countries and territories, it says worldwide, more than 8 in 10 people identify with a religious group. There are 5.8 billion religiously affiliated adults and children around the globe, representing 84% of the 2010 world population of 6.9 billion. So from leading psychologists, famous novelists, national news, media, and global research, we learn what Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 17 clearly teaches us, and that is the human heart is religious. But as we learned last week, having a form of religion, even if it's the the right religion, as Jonah's religion was, the religion of Yahweh, having a form of religion, having a religious heart, is not the same as having a regenerated heart. The two should never be confused. The heart of all humanity is a religious heart, but it's not necessarily, well it's not, apart from Christ, a regenerated heart. So how do you know one from the other? The answer to that question comes from how we deal with the trials of our lives. To use a metaphor that's more appropriate for our passage this morning, how do you respond when the storms of life come rolling through? This morning, we're going to be literally looking at a storm, a literal storm, and see how it revealed fear and religion, how it revealed despair and apathy. Now, these 13 verses, if you're familiar with the book of Jonah, they they move along at a pretty quick clip. It's a very compelling narrative, and it's an exciting narrative that certainly brings the trajectory, the overall arc of the story of getting Jonah to preach the gospel, to preach God's message to the Ninevites. It happens, but the fact that there are 13 verses, so much space given to this storm and the interaction between Jonah and the sailors, it begs to be unpacked. Now, as Kyle just read, it ends, this passage ends with itself, a sacrifice that calms the sea. But that should only make us think of another sacrifice, in fact. But that does more than just calm the sea. It actually transforms the human heart. So we have a lot to look at. So let's, let's, no pun intended, let's just jump in to this storm that revealed fear and religion. Now, the first thing we have to realize, maybe you picked it up in our passage as Kyle was reading it, that from beginning to end, God is superintending all of these events. Do you know it's the very first verse, verse 4, it's God who hurls a big wind upon the sea. Halfway through the passage, when they cast lots, it coincidentally falls to Jonah. And then the passage ends, almost bookending it, with God appointing a big fish to swallow up Jonah. Now, what's significant to keep in mind to the individuals in the story, to the mariners and Jonah, it just seems like chaos and the forces of nature at play. From their perspective, it doesn't seem at all that God's superintending this entire situation. Friends, that's why I love reading the Bible. Because the Bible breaks through what's called the fourth barrier, and it reveals to us things going going on behind the scenes that we are unaware of what so often seems like in our life, just random events and chance and sometimes chaos, the Bible tells us is nothing of the case. As a matter of fact, it is planned and purposeful. And we get to verse 5. Verse 5 immediately bridges the time gap between us and the mariners, almost 3,000 years. We see immediately that even though 3,000 years separate us, we are still very much the same When our lives seem threatened and in danger and in this storm in particular for them, what do they do? Look at verse 5. They find religion. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. Now, now just to be clear, um, this isn't something that should be actually that surprising. In these times, everyone would have cried out to a God. As a matter of fact, they would have had probably three gods to cry out to. They could have took their pick in this time period people generally had a deity of choice and a lot of times it had to do with your vocation so if i was a mariner if i was a seafaring gentleman my god would probably be poseidon right or a god of the storm or a god of fish so that would be my personal deity because usually i want somebody overlooking my vocation they're usually tied to that i'd also have a tribal or family god that i could rely on that i was born into and then finally i would have a national deity Uh, that, that I gave allegiance to by virtue of the fact that I was either maybe Greek or Egyptian or Babylonian or whatever it might be. And we're really not that different. It's not unfamiliar to have someone in America claim to be a Christian. Why? Because they are an American, right? They confuse and conflate the two. Or someone in Japan say that they are a Shinto or Buddhist because they are, after all, Japanese. Or to be in China and to be a Taoist because you are Chinese. We are not much different from these people that we read about 5,000 years ago. The fact that they called upon a God was a given. As we learned, religion, that impulse to cry out, to make sense of things, to find meaning, is hardwired into the DNA of what it means to be a human being. It's part of our human design. It's in our psyche. Now, you might say, well, that, that's not me. I'm not a religious person. I just happen to be visiting today, but I don't believe in these things. I'm not religious, and neither are my friends. That might be true in the traditional way of understanding it. So let's let's get involved in the thought experiment. If I were to say, what what would you call an environment where people gathered routinely, sang uh, and enjoyed uplifting and encouraging music, followed by announcements for ways that people can get involved in the community and do good for others, and then followed by a presentation, about 20 to maybe 40 minutes of sometimes enlightening, encouraging, sometimes sober, sometimes funny, sometimes convicting a message of that sort, what would you call that? Well, you can say, what, what would you call something like that? You're, some of you are laughing because you're going, well, it's a church service. Right? But I didn't describe a church service. I described to you a TED Talk. Right? Some of you guys know what TED Talks are, right? Technology, entertainment, design. That's exactly what's going on. So you even have the format of people who would not necessarily claim a traditional religious orientation doing the exact same kinds of things that religiously oriented people do. And the fact that the format is almost identical is not a coincidence. It's hardwired within the human psyche, the DNA, to make sense of our world, to engage in experiences. They're not just rational, but are emotional. To serve and use our abilities for the good of others and to hear and be encouraged and convicted and challenged and grown. Take another example. What happens when there's a, a national tragedy or you hear something difficult happening in someone's life? What are the, the Twitter feeds like? What do they blow up with? A Hashtag praying, praying for you. Or all kinds of spiritual sentiments start to trend. Friends, it shouldn't be surprising that when tragedy and difficulty and fear grip us, we cry out. This is actually to be expected. We even see this here. Look at verse 6. As the captain is hurling out cargo, you know, they're going down to the bottom of the ship, grabbing cargo and throwing it overboard, and the captain stumbles upon Jonah. What does he say to him? "What What are you doing? He says, what do you mean, sleeper, arise? Call out to your God. Perhaps he will hear us and do something about this. See, the human tendency for help and guidance in time of trouble is not surprising at all. Michael Crichton says it's hardwired. Now, when he studied, he came to this conclusion when he studied anthropology. He says this is hardwired into the DNA of all of humanity. Now, what Crichton may not have been aware of, But he was actually reinforcing what the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, keep your finger in Jonah. Turn over to the New Testament. It's the sixth book of the New Testament. If you're new to your Bible, just go right a bunch of pages. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans... Romans chapter one, verse 19. Now, just if you're new, again, the big numbers are chapter indicators. The little numbers are what we call verses. They're not footnotes. So if I say Romans 1, 19, I'm saying Romans chapter one and verse 19. Romans chapter one, verse 19. This is what Paul says. It's page 937 if you're using our pew Bible. Paul writes, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Them is, Paul's talking about all of humanity because God has shown it to them. His invis- for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So what Paul is saying is that all of humanity is aware of a God, of of, of a supreme being out there. He talks about some of the attributes that they're aware of. Now, they don't know about Jesus Christ and his his, uh, vicarious atonement for our sins. That's what we have special revelation for. But the point Paul is making is that all of humanity is aware of God. It is everywhere they look, you cannot deny it. They're without excuse. So the point here isn't that these, um, these mariners call out to God, Everyone calls out to God. See, see, so if you hear people using God talk or what I call Jesus talk, don't be deceived into thinking that they are Christians. Just because you talk about God, just because you talk about Jesus, just because you acknowledge that He's there does not mean you are a Christian. Do not be deceived by that. The Bible tells us that people will talk about God and use Jesus kinds of languages because they are without excuse. It's everywhere. Friends, the natural state of the human heart is not a denial of God. It is a denial that God is worthy to be trusted. That's the natural human heart. You see, I think people believe that only Christians believe in God. The Bible tells us everyone acknowledges God. The natural human heart is not atheism. If the natural human heart is not willing to believe that God is good and can be trusted, that's the natural propensity of the human heart. So these mariners are doing what all humanity does. In a time of crisis, they cry out for mercy and for help. But notice what these mariners are doing. They're crying out to their gods, and they're hurling out cargo overboard. They're frantically asking who's at fault. They're casting lots. Verse 5 and 10 shows they're increasing fear. In verse 14, they'll say, okay, we'll do this, but please, God, don't be mad. See, it's not that they don't have religion. They, they have lots of religion. They're religious. They have three gods, right? The problem is, in all their religiosity, and this is a problem that many modern people have, They don't know that their gods can be trusted. The problem isn't that they don't believe there's a God. They don't believe he can be trusted. And so they're panicking. Friends, everything about these sailors are like us moderns. They will deal with God if they have to, but they sure don't want to because they don't trust God any more than they can throw God. Right, so, in some ways, they look at God like maybe some of us might look at an angry supervisor or a grumpy DMV worker. You, you know they have the power to make your life miserable. So you don't want to upset them, but you really don't like having to deal with them because you're totally convinced they don't have your good in mind. Isn't that how many of us approach God? that we know he's powerful, he has all this ability, but we don't want to deal with him unless we have to because I don't think he really likes me at the end of the day. I really don't think he's got my best in mind. Friends, is your view of God any different? If you've been at Christ Community Church, your view of God should be that God is supreme and sovereign and just and holy and transcendent from us but you should also have a view of God that He is merciful and kind and compassionate and good and imminent with us. But see, in the world, there's no categories for that because in our world, the people with power and authority use their power and authority to separate themselves from everyone else, and they use that power and authority only for themselves. And those who are merciful and compassionate, they don't have any power and authority to do any good anywhere, anyway. But you see, God has both, and that's the God whom we know. But see, these mariners did not trust him that way, and so they were full, fueled by fear. Do you notice four times the word fear showed up in these short amount of verses? Friends, when religion is fueled by fear, God is not someone you want to know. God is certainly not someone you think you can depend upon. God is certainly not someone that you're going to build a relationship. When fear marks your understanding of God, God is simply somebody to placate, God is somebody simply to appease, and God is somebody you have to avoid unless you have to deal with Him. We even see that in verse 11 back in Jonah. When they find out, when they cast straws or dice and they find out it's Jonah, they ask Jonah, what do they have to do to him? Verse 11, they say to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? In other words, what do we need to do with you so things work out for us? And friends, unless your heart is transformed by the regenerating power of the gospel, your whole understanding of God, the way you relate with him, will be based on fear. Fear that you won't get what you really need in life. Fear that you might not get what you desire in life. Fear that if you don't do this thing right, this will happen. Fear that if you don't do these things, then this would happen. Fear, fear, fear. See, I'm convinced the reason that people don't fully and truly trust God and live their lives in careful obedience to His commands is that in the core of who they are, now they, this is not something people will say, but I'm convinced the reason people don't read the word and say I want to live this way radically is at the core of who they are, they don't believe that, that God wants their happiness and their joy. As a matter of fact, they believe if, if, I, if I live for God, then, then if I really take this seriously, he's going to take all the joy out of my life. And, and yeah, I might get heaven, but I'm going to miss all the good things on earth. Friends, that, that's, that could, nothing could be further from the truth. But I think people really believe that if I listen to this and I live the way the Bible's teaching me, it's not going to turn out the way I want it to be. God's really not looking out for my best interests. Friends, just as, a, as a, an argument against that, the whole reason we have this account in the Bible, the whole reason we have this interaction between Jonah and the sailors, and this is being revealed to us, is because God was seeking the good of an undeserving people, and His mercy and goodness was too radical, even for one of His own, to comprehend. And that's why we have this whole scenario playing out. Romans chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, but Paul continues his argument. So he's answering the question, well, if, well, if God is known to everyone, the question that, that Paul is envisioning in his mind is, then why don't people embrace him and worship him as the true God? And so he answers that in verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So the argument in Romans 1 says, look, All of humanity knows that God exists. It's everywhere you look. You can't deny it. The person Paul's imagining having a conversation and says, well, then why don't people worship God for God? Because they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and now they're worshiping whatever their lie is telling them. Here's the lie. Here's the lie. That we know what is best for us, and we can get it on our own and God is someone that gets in the way of that best or actually doesn't want us to have that to begin with. That's the lie, because all through the Scriptures, God is constantly telling the truth, that He is good and sovereign and knows what's best and desires to give that. But the lie is we believe, no, 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 I know what's best for me, I, mean, I don't think he knows what's best for me or plans to give it to me. So, regardless of what he says, and because he's God, I kind of got to deal with him, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And so, we've exchanged the truth for a lie and we worship money, because that money is going to give me what I know I need that God doesn't know I need, or relationships, or this, this particular relationship, or social prestige, or acceptance, or a comfortable home, or all these meaningful experiences, all these things. We've exchanged the truth for a lie. We worship the creature rather than the creator. That's Paul's argument in Romans 1. And friends, I'm not sure what's worse in this passage. It's almost reflective of, of life, In this passage, we have the tragedy of these sailors calling on gods that cannot help and that they do not trust, that's horrible, or the fact that you have one man who knows the living God who can help, but he's running from Him and now full of despair and apathy towards everyone and everything. Can you imagine being a neutral party on this boat, like you weren't one of the mariners and you weren't with Jonah? You would just be like hosed. I mean, there is no hope anywhere in this situation. How tragic. So, this storm revealed the religiosity in the human heart that just came out in the fear, but it also revealed the despair and apathy in Jonah himself. So, let's take a look at that. Notice in this story, there's kind of three main characters, and by story, I don't mean made-up story. I'm just referring to this historical account as a story. God, the mariners, and Jonah. God is certainly active. We talked about that in verse 4. He's throwing the wind. He's bringing the fish. He's shaking things up. He's involved. The mariners are pretty active. They're crying out. They may be in error, but they're crying out, and they're throwing things overboard. What about Jonah, the third character? He's asleep. (laughs) Just... Homeboy, homeboy, sorry. <laughs> Jonah was just knocked out, right? And I, and I read that and I realized through these 13 verses, every time we see Jonah, he's Mr. Passive. So verse 5, he's asleep in the stern, the bottom of the boat while the storm is crashing above and everyone's lives is in jeopardy. Verse 9, He doesn't come out and confess what's going on. The lot falls to him. Then they question him, and he says, okay, it's me. I'm the reason. And ironically enough, he says, I'm the one that fears the Lord. Which is ironic because he doesn't fear the Lord enough to obey him. And then finally in verse 12, when when they say, well, what do we need to do to you? He says, well, you got to throw me overboard. That's the solution to this problem. Here's the thing that's shocking about his passivity, though. As I was reading, I thought, "Wait, wait a minute. Okay, if Jonah knows... He, Jonah sees what's going on, and he even says, here's what you have to do to save yourselves. you got to throw me overboard. But like, he doesn't do anything about it. Did you get… When he, he knows to save your life, i got to die. He does nothing about it. Now, granted, giving up your life is a big deal. I get that. But there's a pattern of passivity in Jonah. Neither does he care about the Ninevites, so he runs away from God's call, and he doesn't care about these sailors. He knows he can save them, and he's not willing to do anything. Friends, here's the kind of broader point I'm getting at. When we are actively denying God, ignoring the conviction of his spirit in our lives, living in defiant, rebellious sin, cultivating sin, whatever it might be, obvious and open, hidden, and no one else knows, and secret, when we actively engage in this life, We are forfeiting any influence, any good influence, any positive influence in the lives of people around us. When we actively live in ways that we are no contrary to what God commands of His people, we are forfeiting any influence in the lives of people around us. We see that in Jonah. There's three reasons. There's three reasons that happens, and here they are. Number one, when we live this way, we are, quite frankly, becoming irrational. Now notice from last week, twice it says in our concluding verse last week, that he was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. It was very clear. But did you notice when the mariners were questioning him, Jonah said, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, the maker of earth and the sea, but he doesn't connect the dots. Then where do you think you're going that he can't track you down? So he becomes very disconnected from what he believes and how he's living. Have you ever struggled with that? That you know what's right, but you're not living that way. Maybe it's because the primary thing that you were designed to do, walk in obedience and worship the Lord your God, is out of kilter. So don't expect anything else to work exactly right. Become irrational. Secondly, self-centeredness takes over. We talked about this. His lack of concern for the Ninevites, which may be understandable considering what we learned about them, but then his lack of concern for these sailors. No care for them. And when I say self-centeredness, I don't mean the kind of obvious narcissism that plagues our society that we see so much of it it's so obvious and distasteful that we go oh that, that's not me right so so you know self-centeredness in the kind of vein of uh, I don't know, are the Kardashians with that I don't mean that but they just strike me when I think of a self-centered people that's the name I keep thinking of this is it's all about me right that's not the kind of self-centeredness I'm talking about because that kind of self-centeredness is too easy to dismiss and so we think okay that's not me no problem So we think of self-centeredness as this vortex of self. Everything's me, 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 me. That's not the kind of self-centeredness the Bible often addresses. And so that means we're more prone to it than we might realize. The self-centeredness that the Bible's talking about that we're getting at here is living your life as if no other lives really existed or mattered. Right? So you remember our study of Philippians? What did did Paul talk about? Philippians chapter 2? Do nothing... Not some things. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do anything to profit yourself, to put yourself ahead of others or to bring yourself glory. Do none of those things, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, the Bible's not saying you be a welcome mat and that's godly. Everyone walks all over you and you don't matter. That's not it at all. Because notice Paul says, don't just look for your own interests. The implication is you have interests. you got to look out for them. But look out for the interests of others. See, the kind of biblical understanding of self-centeredness lives as if this verse didn't exist in the Bible. That It's all about your interests, your preferences, your needs, your problems, your desires, your agendas, what you want. Did I get the donut I wanted? There's the coffees that I want. It's all about me, me, me. It looks very different than the kind of vortex of self, but that's self-centeredness, right? So let me give a quick illustration of this. There's probably about 150 of us in this room or something like that. If I walk into this room and I, and I, I, I do the mantra of our culture, which is it's all about me, me, myself, and I, have it your way, you know, that kind of a thing, and we all walk into this room with that mentality, how many people are looking out for me? One. One. But if we all obeyed and had the mind of Christ, what Paul says it is that is available to us, and we walked into this room with this mentality, how many people are looking out for your needs? 150. Right? Granted, it's not going to be a one-to-one correspondence, but I think you're getting the point. The point of this radically other-centered lifestyle is not that you don't matter, it's that you matter tremendously, but the only way this works in a world populated with other people is that we all have that mindset. But Jonah forgot that. It was all about me. I have a comfortable life. I don't want to do what God wants me to do for the Ninevites, let alone for these sailors. So he became self-centered. Here's the irony, friends. All through these four chapters, all around our friend Jonah, all around him, are people needing a solution to escape death And Jonah's the only one who knows the solution and doesn't care at all. Because he's more concerned about his comfort. He's more concerned about the nice life he has. He's more concerned about living the way he wants to live. That's from last week. So you become irrational, you become self-centered, which itself is an expression of irrationality. And then finally, you become just spiritually numb. You lose your influence because you're irrational, you're self-centered, and you just become spiritually numb. Do you notice in verse six, it takes a heathen sailor to tell the godly prophet to pray. This is irony upon irony in this text. So this storm is crashing down on the sailors, who cannot trust their gods, and so all they have is fear and some hope in a foxhole religion that somehow will help them. And we have this prophet who won't obey his God, and so he's left with despair and apathy. It's tearing him up apart. So think about it. Everyone on this ship either cannot trust God or won't trust God enough to obey him. This is a horrible situation. Probably a situation a lot like we have in our worlds today. People who don't know God can't trust God or people who won't trust God. And I I think this is one of the most amazing verses. Verse 13, we'll look at it a little bit. All the while, the storm is getting increasingly worse and worse until finally, finally the sailors realize we cannot save ourselves We are doomed unless we trust in this sacrifice. Notice that in verse 13. They talk to Jonah. What do we have to do? Jonah says, well, throw me over into the ocean. That's what's going to solve your problems. In verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. These sailors were trying to save themselves. we got to do this. We, got, we have got to save ourselves. Just row harder. That's the kit, ticket. Just row harder. And they realized, this ain't going to work. We can't save ourselves. Okay, let's trust in that sacrifice. Now, if some of this sounds familiar to you, it, it probably should because there's a New Testament parallel to this. Same, almost identical with, well, everything's reversed except one point. So there's these mariners, they're out in sea, and there's a storm, and they're panicking, their hearts are gripped with fear, and there's a prophet asleep in the stern, and they wake him up and say, cry out to your God, we're dying here. And then Mark four thirty nine records that Jesus awoke, and he told the waves, silence, and everything went still. In verse 41, the mariners, or the disciples, they, they looked at Jesus, and it says, they were even more afraid than they were to begin with. Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey Him? See, in Jonah 1, the, the mariners ask Jonah, why is this happening and, and what should they do to stop it? it was a, they asked him, who are you and what do we have to do? It was a question of identity and a question of salvation. Who are you? How do we get saved? Jonah should have responded, I'm a prophet of God, and you'll be saved by my sacrifice. But Notice, by the way, in, in Jonah, Jonah 1, Jonah doesn't even mention he's a prophet. When they ask him, who are you? What is your occupation? Where are you from? He answers it all, but he doesn't say he's a prophet. His answer should have been, I'm a prophet, and my sacrifice is going to save you. Here's the exception to the parallel I've mentioned. Unlike Jonah, Jesus was a faithful prophet, And unlike Jonah, Jesus willingly threw himself into the storm, the storm of God's judgment, not of his own making, but of our own. The reactions we looked at here in these 13 verses are all the reactions of people that know God. Whether they would consider religious or we'd consider them irreligious, whether it was Jonah or these sailors, they all knew God. The problem was, it was true of all of them, they just didn't trust God. They wouldn't trust Him. They couldn't trust Him. Ironically, in our culture, it kind of almost seems reverse. People cannot trust God because they simply don't know Him. Yeah, like Crichton says and Otto Rank and, and that report says that there is a religious impulse in all of humanity, but what the Bible keeps telling us is that's not a surprise, but that religious impulse is fueled because of sin. It's fueled by fears. The psychologists say it, the novelists say it, the Washington Times says it. And the question isn't whether or not you're religious. That's not the question. We all are. The question really is, what's fueling your religion? And what is it that you're worshiping? That's the question. And the Bible keeps saying, look, if you want a a religious impulse, a worship impulse, that isn't fueled by fear, you want it to be one of, of worship and gratitude and that's fueled by trust, this is what you need to do. You need to look to the one who willingly threw himself into the storm of God's just judgment that was coming to you because you're running from him. If you want that fear to be turned to trust, you need to look to that one. And here's the great thing, friends, Christianity is not a a get-out-of-jail-card kind of thing that, you know, if some people heard that Christianity is a crutch for people who can't handle the real world, and sometimes I would think that the way they see Christians live, they might be right. Right? Because we feel like, okay, Jesus is taking care of all of it. I don't got to deal with hard things. My life should be uh, awesome and clean, and I shouldn't have struggles. And the reality is, we all know that is not the case. The hope of Christianity isn't that you don't go through storms. The hope of Christianity is that you are able to go through the storm, any storm, because of what Jesus did exactly for you. Because ultimately, he calmed the storm. So you can jump into any storm, and it's not going to take you out. It's not going to take you under. It's not going to kill you because Jesus ultimately calmed them all. And it's not, so it's not that we're trying to avoid storms. It's the wonder of the gospel, it's not that it makes our lives easy and, and problem-free. Is that it transforms us to be just like the one who is willing to throw himself into the waves. That's the radical truth. It's not salvation from the storm. It's you get changed so you can get into the storm. This is exactly what 2 Corinthians 3.18 is teaching us. It's on the screen behind me. You don't need to turn there. And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image He's That whole chapter, he's talking about how Jesus is the image of God, and now it's like the climax. He's saying you can be transformed to be like Jesus from one degree of glory to another. So the question you have to ask yourself today is what are you beholding? Are you keeping your eyes fixed on the one who threw himself into the storm on your behalf, or are your eyes always fixed on the storm? One is going to fuel worship and trust. The other is just going to fuel fear. And when you trust God, you are willing to go into that storm because you yourself know that God has gone into that storm before you. And so you can love even if you are not loved in return because you know you've already been loved. First John four fourteen. We love, why? Because He first loved us. You can give, even if others just take and take from you, because you know everything you need, everything you could want, has already been given to you. Romans eight thirty two. How, how how then should we live? What can we say that God has given to us His own Son? How will He not also, with that amazing gift, give us all that we need? You can suffer and go through difficulty because you know it's not in vain and without purpose. Psalm 56, 8, he says that God captures every tear. I love how intimate that this awesome, powerful, holy, transcendent God captures us. He says, I catch every one of your tears in a jar, and I write in my book what they're about. You can sacrifice in this life, and you can go without because you know That you have an inheritance, an inheritance that 1 Peter 1 4 says, an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishable, never fading, kept in heaven for you. See, Jonah thought being thrown into the storm would end his life. Actually, it was the beginning. Being thrown in the storm was the beginning of a new life for him. It wasn't what he intended and he would not have chosen God's means of deliverance for him. We'll learn more about that next week, but it changed him. And friends, you and I, when we give up our lives to God, to love and worship and live for Him, it is not the end of everything. In fact, it is really only then can you actually begin to live because you actually begin to understand what joy, what pleasure, and what life is until you know Christ and Christ grips your heart. All you have done is exchange truth for a lie, and the thing you think is giving you life is going to betray you and bring you death. That's what the Bible clearly teaches, but it's never really what we would have anticipated the way God works in our lives, is it? It never is. But that's okay because God always gets what he wants. And for that, we can be eternally grateful because what God wants, brothers and sisters, for you and for me, for all his people, is eternal joy, pleasure, life. And next week, as we hear Jonah's transformation in the belly of this fish, we'll learn more about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you Father, we ask you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves as we learn that these men could not save themselves until they trusted in your sacrifice. We cannot uh, help ourselves to see life correctly unless you help us open our eyes. Lord, we have, as a, as a humanity, exchanged the truth about you for a lie and we worship the creation rather than the creator, would you be so merciful for, to help all of us have our eyes opened and realize that we have bought the lie in some way in our lives and rejected and embraced the truth. Lord, I thank you so much that as I scan this room, hearing the stories, knowing of how you have done that in ways that have been amazing and every time miraculous. Would you help us continue to do that? Help us to learn from Jonah, to not run from you, but to trust you. Help us to learn from these mariners that it's not how hard we row. We just need to trust in your sacrifice. And we thank you for it. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.